I invite you to take your Bibles with me and let's turn again to Ruth chapter 2 this evening. If you will turn with me in God's Word, we find our place back in the book of Ruth this evening, Ruth chapter 2, and uh, continuing in our study. And we're going to pick up actually right where we left uh, this morning. And I want us to find our place in Ruth chapter 2 verse 10. And uh, we previously had a different heading for tonight's message But I want us to pick up with Ruth's service, part three. And our goal is to go all the way through the end of chapter two. So tonight's message is continuing Ruth's service, Ruth chapter two. And this will be our our third message with this this title. What we find there in Ruth chapter two, verse 10, is so Ruth fell on her face. She bowed down to the ground and said to Boaz, why? Have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a stranger? This is the phrase that really encapsulates this morning's message as we made point of and made note of that this is really the testimony of all of us. This, verse 10 of chapter 2, is the testimony of every disciple of Jesus, of, of every Christian. Why? Have I found grace in the eyes of the Lord? Well, Paul would give us this answer. Well, the reason you found grace in the eyes of the Lord, Acts chapter 2, excuse me, 20, verse 21, is because you demonstrated repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, we always want to rehearse our conversion, rehearse the day that God saved us, and constantly use this as a wellspring by which we give praise and adoration to him. If you're taking notes, we're right in the middle of point number two. Our our outline, number one, we saw was Ruth's mission, beginning there in verse two. Secondly, where we pick up right in the middle, Ruth's meeting with Boaz, looking at verses three down through verse 13. Ruth's meeting with Boaz. And we're going to pick up right in the middle of this section. And we asked the question this morning, kind of thinking within the theme of chapter two, verse 10, is why did Boaz have a heart that was drawn towards Ruth? More than just his natural sensitivity, more than just his natural shepherding care of everyone who was under his sphere of influence, it's obvious, as we will see even more this evening, that Ruth is the object of special affection, graciousness, generosity, And we saw this morning, the answer to that was, as we closed the morning message, was because his mother was Rahab the harlot that we see mentioned in Joshua chapter 1. Now, I'm just curious because several people came up to me this morning, and this is not to embarrass anybody. It's more of just a fascination type of thing. If you did not know that connection, do you mind? Just This is the home crowd here tonight. Just raise your hand if you maybe forgot that or you were reminded. See, that's, that's amazing. Isn't it a joy? to just be reminded of gospel truths, to, to be reminded of, of, of things that maybe we knew and then forgot, or to learn it for the first time. Of course it is. It, it is encouraging. It is strengthening. And that's why it gives further insight into why we, commentators call. I have a book on, uh, that, I, that was a core book in seminary. It's on my shelf behind my desk over there, one where I turn around and reach over the most often. It's called The Unfolding Drama of Redemption by Graham Scroggie. And it's just kind of an overview of the Bible. But that's why we call it that, the unfolding drama of redemption, because we don't want to separate and chop the Bible up to where these are just isolated stories. 
where you've got Joshua the conqueror. He, he's leading Israel to, to conquer surrounding um, enemies, to, to wipe them out off the face of the earth under God's direction. We don't want to separate Joshua's conquering work and then Rahab's great faith, because that's a whole standalone story in and of itself, account of God's graciousness that he shows towards Rahab. But it's a beautiful thing when we can see the tapestry of grace to pull a thread here and to see it wrinkle all the way over on this side and see how it all kind of comes together. And I would tell you, friends, the more we study God's word, the more God, by his spirit, this would be a low-hanging fruit for us to, to make the connections. But the more we do study God's word, he sheds light. He gives us insight. He doesn't reveal the, the treasures of Scripture to us if we're lazy. We have to seek Him, and we have to say, Lord, as I'm reading through this Bible reading plan for many, many times now, show me treasures from your, your Word, your truth that I've never seen before. So why was Boaz drawn towards Ruth? Well, for many reasons. God's sovereign grace, God's preparation, His will for them both, of course, but we cannot overlook this connection that, of course, is God's divine handiwork, that his mother was Rahab. And we see that in Ruth chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 1 when we see um, the, the genealogies there. Rahab entered into the covenant life of Israel, and she married Salmon. And they were blessed together with a son named Boaz. And we can imagine Rahab learning the faith of Yahweh, learning the Pentateuch, learning the law herself, and then teaching her son, following the admonition of Deuteronomy chapter 6, that as you go in the highways and in the hedges and the ordinary rhythms of life, fathers, Salmon, you shall teach him the fear of the Lord. Mothers, Rahab, you shall in invest in them and you shall raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And that's exactly what happened. Boaz was appointed. Boaz was raised up by God's hand. He was a man much like Adam overseeing the garden, but having no help meet. There's no doubt that Boaz probably often wondered, Lord, what's wrong with me? As oftentimes, people who are single, they begin to get the question so many times, they say, Lord, what's wrong? I mean, did I do something wrong? Or all types of questions. I don't mock that. I get that. I have friends who are very dear to me who've had to walk through that, that journey, that trial, and, and understand God's purposes in it all. And we can see Boaz humanly asking the Lord, Lord, why have you given me so much? You've given me lands to oversee. You've given me things. Man, Lord, I could use a wife who fears the Lord. And we can see God's silence not meaning his refusal or his rejection, just his not yet. God has a plan. God has a purpose, and he will bring these things together in his due providence, in his sovereign will. We saw that Boaz was a mighty man of wealth and valor, that God had blessed him. And so we looked at this morning, just very quickly, we'll go very succinctly, Ruth's meeting with Boaz. And we saw that his manner and his person and how he interacts with both the men under his sphere of influence and also the women. But secondly, I want us to move from his encounter with Ruth to his encouragement to Ruth. His encouragement to Ruth. And here we see Boaz's personality really shining through as a spiritual man. Now, we've already seen his graciousness towards her, but in verse 12, we see his prayer in a sense. There's a, we could call it the intercession, verse 12. We see that he encourages Ruth with a godly response. He's not jaded. 
He's not sarcastic, as we noted this morning. He is not worldly wise in how he talks to this strange woman. He, he is not uncallous. He's not trying to be Don Juan. There's all types of things we could say. But what we see here is he, he's a spiritual man. And in verse 12, he says, The Lord repay you, Ruth, for your work. That's out of his grace, by the way. And he give you a, a full reward. Would a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge? Or literally, you, you have found protection and refuge. Boaz here has heard of Ruth's reputation. And here Boaz shepherds her heart to continue to trust in God, to continue to trust in the Lord and His plans for her. He is, in effect, telling her something that she already knows. She's experienced this, but now he comes along and affirms it. Isn't it a beautiful thing when friends and strangers, in, in the, moment, the seemingly everyday moments of life, confirm God's truth? to us. We call it iron sharpening iron moments. We call it, maybe we'll use the phrase, uh, my spirit bore witness with their spirit. There was a common bond in grace in this conversation that we had. Well, we see that taking place here. He points her to the fact that, that God is a refuge for his children. And friends, this is a truth that we see in God's Word, a truth that we have experienced as well. Verse 12, the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. Friends, God is a refuge for all those who put their trust in Him. Have you put your trust in Him this evening? I don't ever want to presume that this is just a, yeah, 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 we, we, we know this. Friends, let's rehearse the gracious goodness of our God. This truth is the fact that he is a, God is a hiding place. He, excuse me, we can be sheltered under his wings. In fact, this phrase, wings of God, is unusual, isn't it? It's very unusual. In fact, whereas we would call human-like characteristics in Bible study terms or hermeneutical terms, we would say God's mighty hand of power, God's hand of provision, the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. Those types of references are anthropomorphic references. Anthropology, meaning the study of man. They, they are a connection. God, of course, is spirit. And so, but he, the scriptures are inspired to give us these, these vignettes that help us to understand his character and his nature. But what is this? <laughs> we don't have wings, so this can't be an anthropomorphic illusion. Uh, 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 or reference. Well, this is what is called a zoo, don't laugh here, zoomorphism. And it refers to animals. In fact, this is a, whereas it may sound unusual on the, like, on the, to the ear, just on the surface level, this is actually really common in Scripture. So I want to take just a moment to show us how, how actually not only common is this in Scripture, but Jesus makes reference to this in his intercessory ministry. Again, the term is zoomorphism. And it means comparing an aspect of who God is, or a part of God, to that of an animal. And it's not in irreverence. It's in a way that gives us a mental word picture that draws our hearts close to Him and helps us trust in Him. For example, maybe one example, this is not a zoomorphism, but a Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is what? Well, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it, or into it, some translations say, and they are safe. 
In other words, when we invoke the name of the Lord, Lord, help. Father, I need you. We, we begin to cry out to God. The name of the Lord is a strong tower to the righteous, and they run into it, and they're safe. Safe in their car, safe in the auditorium, safe at home, safe in the ditch, in the tornado, safe anywhere. So that's the idea. Malachi chapter 4 verse 2 is, is one common reference. But to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness, shall arise with healing in his wings. And you shall go, you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. Psalm 17, verse 8, keep me as the apple of your eye, the psalmist cries out, and he says, hide me under the shadow of your wings, obviously conveying, Lord, protect me like a mother protects her little chicklets or her little babies, her little baby birds. In our beginning of April or middle of April, somewhere in there when we all begin to plant flowers and hang out our, our hanging baskets and, you know, the Begin to spruce up for the spring season. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Okay. All right. I think. All right. So, so we did that. And I hate to, you know, so bottom line. So we did that and we hung up ferns. And I noticed one fern right in the middle just began to turn brown. But all these other ones are looking great. Now, I will confess to you that in the Lamb household, my job is to buy the stuff. And it's, charity is the green thumb. And the children are the, they're the workers. And it's their job, daily task list, to keep these things alive. And so when you next time you come to the Lamb's house and you pull up, you'll, that explains a lot, right? No, okay, just being funny. But one of these ferns, the third one right in the middle, all these other ones are flourishing, but this one's just turning brown. And it's just dying. And I, so I go inside, like the loving husband that I am, and I say, Charity, what, what's go, hey, whoa, 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 what, what's going on out here? And Charity graciously begins to explain it, well, come and see. And so she takes me out to that dying brown fern and she picks it off and she pulls it down, and what we find is a little bird's nest in there. Well, in the lamb household, if a bird's nest appears anywhere, all of a sudden that thing is, is sacred. And I, I wasn't bought in yet. I, I hadn't bought into the vision, the glorious vision of this, this bird's nest. Well, but over time, she called me and we'd look in there, and then there would be four little eggs, the cutest little eggs you've ever seen. And she evidently, in her early morning uh, watering of the flowers, would begin to see the, the mother continue to come back and the father providing food for these little baby birds. And you get the idea. And so we come back from camp, and there are no baby birds. Whereas we left last weekend, and these baby birds, when you pull it down, are have their, their mouths open, thinking we're about to give them worms, and we're just looking at how cute they are. But that mother bird comes and would protect them from our cat named Callie. Now the good news is Callie can't reach this fern. It's, it's way up away. But what was a beautiful picture of what we're seeing here is this zoomorphism that points us to the protection of God is this mother bird took it seriously. And anytime our cat would come near, we could hear this mother bird talking, communicating uh, to our cat named Callie, don't you dare get near these, these babies. Well, this is what the inspired text is invoking for us is this, this mental picture of a mother bird of some sort of different types protecting her brood, coming underneath her wing in the storm, coming underneath her wing as she sees a threat approach. Psalm 36, verse 7. How precious is your loving kindness, your kesed, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. 
Maybe one last one, New Testament reference, Matthew 23, 37, in the earthly ministry of Jesus as he's preparing to go to the cross. He's reviewing his ministry. Now, of course, Jesus is led of the Spirit of God, and we see this divine tension. Yes, we're right in the heart of Matthew's gospel and our study of Matthew, and we see the divine judgment that Jesus renders to these religious Pharisees, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And in fact, we've just come through the parables where he intentionally teaches through the parables to reveal truth, excuse me, conceal truth from them, but to reveal it to those who God has purposed to receive it. And yet we see here in Matthew 23, 37, that Jesus laments over Jerusalem, or more properly, over Israel. This is what he says. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often, this is the heart of God. If you want to know the heart of, like this is not just an excursion of running down the golden lane of like, let's talk about zoomorphisms. Listen, this is the heart of God. This helps us to see who he is. And Jesus gives us maybe the defining verse on it. How often I wanted to gather you, Jerusalem, Israel, as as children. How often I wanted to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Well, going back to Ruth 2, here we see Boaz being a shepherd, encouraging her, affirming Ruth and saying, under the Lord God of Israel, may he repay your work, verse 12, and a full reward be given to you, Ruth, by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. So as Jesus is saying, Israel, Israel, how I would have desired this, but you were not willing. Here we turn and we see God looking to the land of Moab and calling out in salvation a Moabitess. And this Moabitess is made willing. She comes, she understands the gracious call of God, experiences his salvation. She is willing. And Boaz here shepherds her, rehearses God's goodness and grace, and affirms her in the truth. The second thing we see in this encouragement that Boaz gives is in verse 14. Notice the invitation that he extends. Now, verse 14 of chapter 2 says this. Now, Boaz said to Ruth at mealtime. Don't miss this, friends. He says to Ruth, come here and eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed parched grain to her. And she ate and she was satisfied and she kept some back. Now, we continue to learn a lot about Boaz. Not only is he a, a shepherd, not only is he a gracious man and a generous man, we've already seen his provision is abundant, it's personal. He, he's a real person, living and breathing. As we saw this morning, he is a man of wealth. He is not like Nabal, Abigail's husband. He's a man of discernment. He's a man who fears the Lord. But it's very clear right here in verse 14 that he is a man who's in love. You say, well, wait a second. How do you know that? Friends, this is not hard to figure out right here. In verse 14, we see where he extends this invitation to her. You know a man is in love when he shares his food. I'm going to say that again. You know a man is in love when he shares his food. And ladies, if you've ever experienced that, enjoy that window of courtship or dating while that lasts when you share those meals because that that, that changes once marriage happens. I'm kidding. Maybe, Maybe it's not for you. Obviously, men are bulldogs when it comes to their food. But we see just a very human, a normal Uh, exchange here 
But listen, friends, this is, this is grace. This is privilege upon privilege. Boaz isn't doing this with everybody in the field. He calls Ruth to come and to have a date, to come and share lunch with him. In fact, notice what he tells her. He invites her. He says, come and, and eat of the bread. Come apart a while. No doubt he wants to get to know her. But the, the advice to her to come dip your, your piece of bread in the vinegar uh, let's just talk about that for a second. So in, in this agrarian culture, it's hot. They're laboring. It's, you can imagine all the, the stuff in the air, the stickiness. And so they would become depleted very quickly. And this is a, a normal staple snack or lunch, if you will, to dip your bread in the vinegar, hardened bread, bread that is, that is um, sometimes very, very hard. And so dipping it in that wine vinegar would soften it, would make it edible and delightful, but also give energy uh, to the body. And so this is practical. And so he invites her to come and partake of this practice. And then, evidently, he's got some good stuff on the side. This is why we know he's a man who's in love. He's, he's not only inviting her to come share bread and share a meal, but he gives to her parched grain. Different translations render this uh, different ways, but the point is, is he shares his food with her. Whatever this is, it is parched grain, it is seasoned, it's prepared in some way, and she enjoys it. She ate and was satisfied and even reserved some for later. And this is obviously, we'll come back to that, but it's for Naomi, we, we would assume. One thing we see here is that Boaz does not have a scarcity mindset. Or you can say it like this, Boaz is not cheap. Boaz is, is, again, just gracious. And he ministers to Ruth in this way. He meets her physical needs, her emotional needs. As we've already seen, verse 8, he invites her to glean in his fields, to stay close by his maidens, to drink that which the young men have drawn, to sit in his house and eat at his table. Verse 9, Have not I commanded the young men not to harm you? That's physical protection. And then verse 12, he says, The Lord repay your work, and a full reward be given you. In each one of these phrases, we learn a lot about this man, this godly man who is a type of Christ, the Goel. He will later become the kinsman redeemer, as Naomi will articulate for Ruth at the end of chapter 2. But I just want to make a note here. We've been kind of doing an overlay, talking about what laws we see here in this passage. This morning, we looked at the law of gleaning, reminded ourselves of that law. We also looked at the law of just grace, grace and salvation, grace and practice, grace and life. But here, I want to just emphasize very briefly the law of generosity, the law of generosity. This is not just something that's obscure. Friends, this is a, a key doctrine of God's people, or you could say a practice of God's people, a fruit of God's people. Here's another way to say it. God's people are, great, are a gracious people. In Grace Church, I want to say this. I've said it before, but I'm going to say it again. You are a gracious church. You embody this law, or you could say you obey this law, if you will, that we see in Scripture. But this law is evident in your life, in your practice, in your words. You're not uh, you embody this in the week after week, opportunities for ministry, the, the opportunities that God gives to us as a church, you are ready to minister. And it's not just in physical, tangible things, although certainly it includes that, but it's in words, it's in kindness, it's in deed, it's in time, and how you dispense those things and freely offer them. And I just want to remind ourselves that God's people are a gracious people. To be funny, we often all will say, we want to live up to our name, right? We are, we are Grace Community Church. And I'm glad to say, I don't want to say this pridefully, I don't mean that at all. It's just encouraging to say, friends, I think we're in step. 
As your pastor, I believe we're in step with the name that we've chosen for our church as it reminds us and points us back to our gracious God. And may He continue to enable us uh, to continue to be that. God's people are a gracious people. I have a friend who is, is very gracious. I've known for a number of years and he will often, when people say something to him, or just in a happenstance, I know I've heard him just as an aside in conversation, mention John 3.16 again and again and again. And he said that when he understood, understood who God was, what melted his heart at the heart of the gospel was the fact that God gave. In, all, in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And he says he's never gotten over that phrase, that God would give his Son for us. And so that is a key verse in his practice that, that motivates him. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 7, Paul says to the church, he says, But as you, church, abound in everything, faith, speech, knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see then, Paul says, that you abound in this grace of giving. Jesus, mentioning this law of graciousness, generosity, Luke chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus reminds us, he says, Give, and it shall be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use it, it will be measured back to you again. What we see here in Boaz is that he is in harmony with his, his spiritual character. His character is in harmony with his generosity. He is generous with Ruth. He enhances Ruth's dignity by giving her not only opportunities to work, but going above and beyond that of being kind and gracious to her. As we saw in his greeting, how he brings the sacredness of God into the everyday. Colossians 3, doing our work. Uh, uh, Colossians 3, 24, I believe it is, doing our Work as unto the Lord and not unto men is the ethic, the biblical ethic that, that Paul reminds the church. We saw in Boaz's greeting where he says, the Lord be with you today. And they said, the Lord bless you. Here we see a man who's truly tasted of the kindness and blessedness of the Lord and does not have a scarcity mindset. He's not a, afraid that if he follows the Lord's promptings and gives and encourages with what God has given to him, that it may never happen again. Now listen, he, he, he holds life with an open hand, not a, a clenched fist. Then notice the instructions he gives to his workers in verses 15 through 17. Here again, Boaz, for the second time mentioned to us, he gives instructions. The first time, he simply relays to Ruth, this is what I told the young men. But here, we see in verses 15 through 17 that when she rises up from lunch or from the dinner... When Ruth rose up again to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. Also, let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. Leave it that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. We see here twice that Boaz has a mindset of, of knowing how to guide these men. And why is that? Could it be that Boaz has ever been verbally made fun of because of his parents? I don't know. We're reading a description in that regard, but let's not act like that's too far off. Boaz has a mindset that says, okay, I've given instructions to my men not to physically touch her, but now I'm going to address the heart. Now I'm going to address their words. He instructs them 
to intentionally let the grain fall from the bundles for her so that it seems as if that this is a part of what is laid aside, but he wants to ensure that she has an abundance to take back for provision for her and Naomi. So before we've seen Boaz instruct the men not to physically touch her, now he gives them instruction not to verbally abuse her. Again, this, this points us to the type of man that, that Boaz is and his care and his interest for, for Ruth. Boaz is not only a type of Christ, but here we see his loving display towards Ruth. Again, verse 10, where Ruth would say, Why have I found grace in the eyes of the Lord? Well, we've seen Ruth's mission. And secondly, we saw, we've looked at Ruth's meeting with Boaz. And now number three, Ruth's good report. Ruth's good report. And it's amazing how fast and how quick things can change, isn't it? Things can change in a moment. Things can change in an hour. Circumstances can change in a day. And friends, we see all of that taking place right here, where things look dark, they look bleak. Ruth is going out into the day saying, I hope that by Yahweh's kindness I can talk someone into allowing me to do some day laboring work. And by the end of the day, she is carrying and by the end of the week and these experiences of working in the field, she is carrying on home more than she can handle. So join me in verse 17. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening and beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about an ephah of barley. Then she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. So she brought out and gave to her what she had kept back after she had been satisfied. Verse 19, that was the, the lunch that she had with Boaz and what she kept aside. Verse 19, and her mother-in-law said to her, Where have you gleaned today, and where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. She sees Ruth stumbling home underneath this Epha, ephah, of a burden of grain. And some, some commentators say this is enough to feed, um, I mean, you can go on and on to give the stats. Some say this is enough to, to feed 50 men. Others would say this is enough to sustain a family for, for two weeks. Bottom line is this, is this is 30 pounds, believed to be anywhere from between 30 to 40 pounds of, of wheat, barley. The bottom line is it's heavy, and it's a lot. God's been good. And so she sees it. And Naomi says, where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. So Ruth said and told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, this man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Verse 20, then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, this man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. Ruth the Moabitess said, Well, he also said to me, You shall stay close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. So Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women and that the people do not meet you in any other field. So she stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, and she dwelt with her mother-in-law. Again, notice the Holy Spirit's direction to show us her deference. This reveals her character, her care, her humility, as we saw this morning. May I go out, Naomi, seeking that respect and seeking that permission, coming back 
receiving the instructions, relaying the instructions, and continuing to think of someone other than herself. And that last phrase, she continued to live and dwelt with her mother-in-law. Notice when he first, underneath this third heading, this good news that, that Ruth brings. Verse 19, the attitude of Naomi. We want to highlight here just the change in Naomi. Friends, it's always a beautiful thing when we see change in people. Uh, in other words, we may have a bad attitude today, but friends, aren't you glad that attitude, that spiritual heart condition, which is really the heart of the issue, um, that the Lord is gracious and kind to change, to remove the dark cloud at times that will not lift. When we only see things a certain way, and we're in a, sometimes we say we're in a funk, we're in a ditch, we, we're just in a rut. We, here we see that there is hope for Naomi. Whereas Naomi has been despondent, Naomi has been sitting alone and just kind of rehearsing all the tragic things that have happened to her. We see it. We see a different Naomi here. There's a tremendous difference of Naomi at the end of chapter 2 than the Naomi we saw in the whole chronicling of chapter 1. In chapter 1, the beginning, Naomi is that pleasant one. She's that the sweet one. That's literally what her name means. And no doubt she embodied that. Also, very quickly, verse 5 of chapter 1, we see that Naomi becomes the grieving one, threefold grieving one. She loses her husband, and she loses her two sons. At the end of chapter 1, Naomi, when she comes home to Bethlehem, says, Do not call me the sweet one. Call me Mara. Call me the bitter one. We can certainly understand that. She is, she is in this state of despondency and grief. But here at the end of chapter 2, we see that Naomi is the spiritual one. Notice what she says in verse 19. This is nothing other than the grace of God, friends. Verse 19, blessed be the one. Notice this language she uses. Blessed be the one who took notice of you. Here she sees Ruth. No doubt Naomi's rocking on the rocking chair out front. And she sees Ruth stumbling down the road under this burden of the weight of her harvest that she's bringing home from the goodness, generosity of Boaz. And she notices that. In verse 19, she says, Blessed be, she gives a, a doxology, if you will, a song of praise. Blessed be the one who took notice of you, Ruth. And then in chapter 2, very quickly in verse 20, we see that Naomi becomes the rejoicing one. We'll see that in just a moment. But she quickly moves to a state of rejoicing when she understands the whole story. Not only the attitude of Naomi, but notice with me in verse 20, the anticipation that she exhibits here. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord, who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. What is she saying here? This is God's kindness, not only to her and Ruth, who are still alive as, as widows, but this is also God's kindness to Elilamech and Malon, who have gone on in death. Does God provide for those that remain? Does God care about those who are, as we saw this morning, in the law of the, the harvest or the law of the gleaning? Does God care? And the answer to that, of course, is yes. He is the one who will provide. And here Naomi gives assent to that and, and cognizance to that. Here we see Naomi is the rejoicing one. We see bitter and broken Naomi exult in doxology by realizing, I think, and kind of seeing it all come together when she says in this phrase, this man, Boaz, he's a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. You, let me remind you that Bethlehem's not a big place, estimated to be three, 400 people. And I'm sure there's only so many people named Boaz. 
and because Boaz is a mighty man of wealth and valor, there's probably not that many Boazes who could load Ruth down in the way that, that uh, she's coming home. So she quickly ascertains and realizes, this is our family. And Naomi's probably thinking, why did I not think of this? How did I not put this together? There's all kinds of things we could put in there. We need to limit that. But the point is simply this. She is the rejoicing one. All of a sudden, Naomi sees this unfolding drama of redemption becoming clearer and clearer and clearer. Could it be? Could it be that Boaz could redeem us? That, that, is, the, that is the heart between bitter Naomi, who's now no longer bitter. She's rejoicing uh, Naomi. She sees God's hand of providence in ways that she's not seen it before. Boaz is a kinsman redeemer, and God has prepared him. God has preserved him. God has planted him, as Esther would say, for such a time as this. Friends, it's a rewarding thing to know that God guides and orders our steps. And no, I'm not trying to make a connection to the fact that I'm not Boaz, and you're not Boaz, and I'm not Ruth, and you're not Ruth, but you know what? We are us. We are the children of God. It's an amazing thought in all the despondency and gloom of the world around us as we just survey the, our current climate and we obviously see things getting worse and worse. And if we dwell on those things too long, of course, it can affect our, our moods and all, all that kind of thing, our outlook. But friends, just come back to the heart of God and his sovereign purposes for us and realize this, that you and I are alive right now because God wants us to be. God has ordained that we be here for such a time as this. And so that changes things. When we rehearse God's hand of providence and care and, and um, provision and His grace, it, it strengthens our back. It gives us a straight back and it gives us courage. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence and it causes us as His children to say, Lord, I don't know what you have for me, but I believe this. In the same way, O oh God, that you prepared Boaz and you preserved him and you planted him and you led his steps like Abraham's servant who was able to say, Eliezer, when he's looking for a bride for Isaac, as he was able to say, I being in the way, all I know is, the, you know, there's the right and there's the left, but then there's the way. And Eliezer's saying, all I know is, is I just got right in the middle of the road and I being in the way, God led me. So what do we mean by that? Let's, how do we bring it into what we're, I being in the word, I being in the way, you being in the mind of God, Philippians 2, 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let it be the lens by which you view everything. Let God's word instruct you and encourage you and know that in the same way that God is ordering his children in Judges and in Ruth, God's the God of the eternal present, friends. A thousand years is unto God is as a day, and a day as unto a thousand years. He's not lost on us. He's not forgotten us. And whoever you are, church, and wherever you are in your life and the age and that what, you, what your calling is and your service and wherever God has planted you, just know this, that in 2023, it's no mistake that you're here. And it's no mistake that God has put you right where you are to give Him glory. And it's a beautiful thing when sometimes we wake up and realize, God's been preparing me my whole life for this moment right here. And I hope you experience some of that. I hope in your lifetime, or maybe regularly, maybe daily, maybe weekly, that God in His grace will kind of, just by His Spirit, prompt you and say, hey, this, is this starting to make sense now? This is, you've been wondering, you've been asking me questions, but I just want you to know, child, daughter, son, this is, 
This is what I have for you. This is, I'm raising you up for such a time as this. Be encouraged, friends. Well, lastly, in this good news that, that Ruth brings to Naomi, we see the advice. All of a sudden, we say Naomi being this wise, cheerful, sage, awesome mother-in-law. Up until this point, just to speak in humanly practical terms, Ruth has been amazing. Naomi, not so much, but she redeems herself. And Naomi is not, uh, Ruth is not the only one being redeemed in this unfolding drama of redemption. Naomi is too. All of a sudden, we see Naomi doing what Naomi should have been doing all along. Not talking Ruth out of going away from God. Not saying, Ruth, here's just what you need to do. Thinking in human terms and human wisdom. Here we see Naomi say to Ruth, verse 22, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, and that people do not meet you in, in any other field. Here we see the closing application that Naomi will continue to give advice going into the beginning of chapter 3. And she will begin to guide Ruth now from this point on into what is God's provision. What God has provided for His people, not only with the law of gleaning, but the law of the kinsman redeemer. And we will look at that in our next time together. But again, I want to close, if you'll go back, to, go back with me to Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. And I want us to conclude by just kind of launching off this passage as we summarize all these things and put them together. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. We touched on this this morning, that Ruth is really an embodiment, an example of this passage. But you know what? We have, if you're like me, and I know you have, almost any time I mention Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, I have a conversation with someone afterwards about how the Lord used it in your life in a particular way, almost like on a weekly basis. In fact, we could say it like this. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is really the kind of the life verse of every Christian. I know there's other verses that we lean on as well. But simply this, trust in the Lord, church, with all your heart, and lean not into your own understanding. See, that's where we get off track, isn't it? We, we start leaning on our own, our fears begin to lead us instead of the facts of who God is. But lean not unto your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean on to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. Seek Him first, Scripture teaches. Lay out everything before Him. Plead for wisdom, James 1. He will not upbraid you or correct you. Acknowledge Him. Say, God, I need light. I need help. I need insight. And He shall direct your feet, your paths, the way of your life. Verse 7, do not be wise in your own eyes. Again, this would parallel with do not lean into your own understanding. Verse 7, do not be wise in your own eyes. In the language of Romans 13, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Humble yourself, First Peter 1, under the mighty hand of God, and he, he will lift you up. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. And friends, this is what we see Ruth doing when she doesn't know what to do. And here we see, I'm not going to say the end of the story, but we're smack dab in the middle of the story. In fact, verse 23 of chapter 2 simply says, So Ruth stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, and she continued to dwell with Naomi, her mother-in-law. Well, next time together, we're going to look at simply the law or just the kinsman redeemer and we're going to apply it to not only what it is, but how it points us to the fact of how we are redeemed as well. 
Well, friends, I want to say thank you for being patient with me. I love studying the Old Testament. I'm not good at it. Studying the Old Testament or preparing to preach from the Old Testament is a, is a whole different animal uh, than the New Testament. And I'm enjoying it and also learning uh, how to do it as well. And I pray that the Lord will use it in the life of our church uh, to strengthen us and to help us and to just help us to glory in His glorious gospel. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for truth. The most, the most valuable thing that we own is not anything physical or tangible, but it's the truth. In Proverbs, your word says, buy the truth and sell it not. As your people, Lord, as we think about what we've learned, what we've rehearsed, and what we've been reminded of today, would you help us, Lord, to not sell it? Would you help us to treasure it, to value it? Would it be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path? Lord, as we saw this morning, and I pray that many of us did it, our encouragement was to go back and reflect on your gracious providence in leading us and in guiding us. And Father, as we've done that, it makes today, uh, all Sundays, all Lord's Days are certainly sweet, but just makes it seem even sweeter uh, in this moment. And we thank you for that. Would you strengthen your church? Would you protect us now as we go forth in your name? Would you bless the work of our hands? Lord, as regarding ministry today, many things were taking place, jail ministry, teaching ministries, going forth and visiting those who are shut in, and certainly many things I'm, I'm not aware of. But Lord, you are, and you are the one who will reward. And we pray that you would give encouragement and strength to your people, and that you would show us fruit for our hire, give us souls for our hire and fruit for our labor. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. 